on-demand coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. June 6th edition of PFTPM. What do you say, PFTPM Posse and or anyone else out there who isn't a member? You know who you are. You need to be. It's easy to be. Subscribe to the podcast and follow on Twitter at PFTPM Posse. That's it. No entry fee. No selection process. It's very simple. The rules are fairly simple when it comes to OTAs. Every year, though, it seems like a team finds itself on the wrong side of them. Before I get into that, biggest story from the afternoon, Charlie Ebersol, co-founder of the Alliance of American Football. More than a half hour discussion with him taped earlier today, coming up after I babble for a little bit about whatever it is I'll be babbling about. Things that have happened since PFT Live ended earlier today. And then on the back end, as always, questions from the PFTPM posse, which has been invading PFT Live most days recently with some great questions, but save some good questions for hashtag PFTPM as well. The Baltimore Ravens losing two days of OTAs and fines implemented against head coach... John Harbaugh, owner Spashadi. And they didn't come out and say directly what the issue was, but it's clear by implication that there was excessive contact on passing plays during the offseason program. And the Ravens have issued statements where GM Ozzie Newsom and coach John Harbaugh say all the right things, but the bottom line is they got busted. And there's no room for ambiguity in situations like this because the NFLPA and the NFL have access to the tapes of every practice that happens. And what happens is players get too rambunctious at times, especially guys trying to make the team undrafted free agents, guys trying to make a good impression and Sometimes the the coaching staff doesn't do enough to remove the the amount of contact from the from the practice. And that's what happened here, plain and simple. Other teams possibly are doing it. You know, it's possible that practices from other teams haven't been scrutinized. What often happens is somebody rats out the team and the NFLPA starts looking into it and it goes from there. So the Ravens tiptoe around it. The Ravens do everything but say we didn't do it. The problem is they did it. And if they hadn't done it, they wouldn't have gotten in trouble, but it's all there. Two OTA days gone, Thursday and Friday of this week. They delayed announcing it as long as they possibly could. I wonder how long the Ravens knew about it. They will have mandatory minicamp next week. They're just losing two of their 10 OTA days. And often, coaches cancel the last one anyway. 
We're vigilant about practicing within the collective bargaining rules, Ozzie Newsom said. I am. John Harbaugh and his assistants are. I attend every practice and then watch the practices again on video. I see how the coaching staff teaches, corrects, and addresses issues immediately on the field. In meetings, I have watched John's presentation to his players and assistants regarding how to properly practice. In the pace of these sessions, we have players competing, including rookies and those fighting to make our team. Sometimes breaking old practice habits of these players, especially rookies, takes more repetitions We'll continue to be vigilant about this. The PR staff did their job. They wrote a statement that kind of accepts responsibility, but not really. Not really. And this happens. The rookies at times are trying too hard to make the team. Trying too hard to impress the coach. And the obligation falls on the coaching staff to keep the players from overdoing it. And it often happens with new coaches. It often happens with coaches who maybe know that they better win. They better turn it around. Greater sense of urgency can prompt a head coach to maybe be a little less determined to eradicate contact from off-season practices. Malcolm Jenkins, the Eagles' safety, met with reporters on Wednesday. He was peppered with questions about the White House trip cancellation. And he didn't say anything. It's worth your two minutes to watch the video that was taken by Shell Capadia of The Athletic. Because... Jenkins just holds up one piece of poster board after another with messages written on it. You're not listening. Gets held up several times. Statistics about police interactions with minorities. 500,000 people in jail tonight, not because they're convicted, but because they're too poor to pay bail. True Patriots, the heading of one of the boards with the names of various players under it. It's worth watching it because Jenkins just keeps flashing one after another calmly. He didn't answer a single question. And I don't know how long all of this continues. Doug Peterson, the coach of the team today, clearly wanted nothing to do with it keeping with the trend established by the league and by the teams. They do not want to engage the president. They don't, they don't, they don't. And now they're getting criticized for taking the criticism from the president and not fighting back. Because at a certain point, it does become conspicuous. It does become awkward to have the league not say anything about the lies being told about the players the false impressions being created by the White House and by Fox News about Eagles players. But see, we can't engage because if we engage, then, then you know, it's going to continue. Well, it's going to continue even if you don't engage. It's a point that I've been making for a while now. Look, there are two ways to deal with a bully. One, ignore the bully until the bully gets bored. Two, stand up. 
And see, in the schoolyard setting, typically the bully is coming after you to get a reaction from you. And if you're not reacting to the bully, the bully gets bored. But it doesn't matter in this case if the NFL reacts or doesn't react to the bully because the bully is going to keep pushing because the reaction is coming elsewhere. Makes it easier for the bully. He can say whatever he wants with impunity. There's no lines he has to worry about because the NFL isn't going to stand up to him. That strategy is not working. It's making the NFL look weak and ineffective. And I think it's attracting attention to the various things the NFL has done wrong in connection with the handling of the anthem issue, all the way back to the creation of the policy that pulled the players out of the locker room and put them on the field, the writing of the rule, which left an opening for players to protest, the handling of the situation after Colin Kaepernick was first spotted sitting. Instead of swooping in and passing a rule saying, thou shalt stand, the NFL said, no, they got the right to stand. Or Neil, we want them to stand. They don't have to. And it just continued on and on. No foresight, no proactivity. Is it proaction or proactivity? Nothing proactive. How about that? When in doubt between which of two words is right, find another word. That's my tip of the day. If you have any doubt, speaking, writing, anything, not quite sure how to spell a word, just find a different word. Is this the right word? Well, I don't know. If I have any doubt, I'm not going to use it. Proactive. Proactive. NFL is reactive. And it all lands on the commissioner's desk, doesn't it? He's getting $40 million a year. Now, it could be that on this situation, like so many others, part of what he's getting paid for is to take the heat for the owners. And the owners have decided they don't want to do anything. But I think at some point in the past nine years... The NFL should have done something differently. And if the NFL had, the NFL would have avoided all of this crap. And not just for the NFL's benefit, but for the rest of us too. Because we're caught in the middle of the crap. Some sort of crap happening with Antonio Brown. I don't know what's the deal. We talked about this today on PFT Live. I wrote about it. It went unnoticed for the most part. Antonio Brown calling out Bruce Arians. Calling out Mike Tomlin. Bruce Arians said he's a special teams guy. He can't learn the plays, hots and sights, meaning hot routes and sight adjustments. Not smart enough. Tomlin benched Antonio Brown on a bye week at some point. Said two dogs, one bone. God bless him. Hashtag puts him respect on my name. That's some typos strewn throughout that. Antonio Brown's a great player. I don't know why he's got to bug up his butt. Last year he wanted paid, he got paid, even after he did the stupid Facebook Live post from the locker room after the win over the Chiefs. Antonio Brown used to be fairly regular on PFT Live. We got shut down for the most part after he did some dumb things and we had the nerve to say Antonio Brown did some dumb things. Hey, Antonio, we all need somebody in our life who's willing to tell us you're doing you're doing some things that are not well advised, not well advised at all. I think he's a great player. I think he's a hell of a nice guy, but sometimes I just wonder. 
Just do your thing, Antonio. He posted over the weekend, Am I the best receiver in the generation? If I stopped today, where would you rank me? Why? Why? What's the point? I don't get it. I don't understand what's up with Antonio. I don't know if the new offense in Pittsburgh is going to evolve away from him. I don't know. I don't get it. He's still one of the best receivers in the NFL. Why? I'm, and look, I understand. Oh, I got to be the best. But if there's no way to make yourself clearly the best, now there is one way to make yourself clearly the best. I mean, if you're just absolutely dominant, if your numbers are just off the charts, if you never drop a pass, if you average 20 yards of reception, if you're catching 10 a game and scoring a touchdown or two every game. But for the most part, it's subjective. It's in the eye of the beholder. Reasonable minds may differ. I don't know why it's not good enough to just kind of be in the conversation. I don't know. Maybe you have to be obsessed with being number one to be good enough to be in the conversation. Des Bryant was once in the conversation. Des Bryant's been employed for, or unemployed in his case, maybe for nearly two months now. Deion Sanders came out and urged the Cowboys to bring him back. Let's just apologize and say, Des, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Come on back. You didn't know Jason Witten was getting ready to retire. You didn't know this knucklehead Terrence Williams was getting ready to do what he did when he got out of the car and ran out of his Lamborghini. Deion Sanders says, bring Des back. And it's just a weird situation with the Cowboys. We've talked about this before. you got Jerry Jones and Stephen Jones walking on eggshells with Des Bryant, and you've got guys like Will McClay and Sanjay Lau saying he can't do it anymore. If they truly believe he can't do it anymore, then don't bring him back. And I don't know, do they think Des doesn't realize that there are guys in the organization that that don't have much regard for him? Is it enough that Stephen Jones and Jerry Jones are saying, well, we don't know why he doesn't have a job. Well, we don't know. He's really good. Any team should want him, except us. Any team in the world should want him, except us. Reuben Foster now is in position where the NFL can impose discipline on him. He entered a diversion program recently for a marijuana situation. He could be suspended for that. And he could be suspended for this no-contest plea on a misdemeanor gun charge. 232 hours of community service, two years of probation. He's not permitted to possess a gun during the two years of probation. Yeah, I think he's going to be missing a game or two here or there. The question becomes, how little will it be in comparison to what it could have been if he'd faced any responsibility for domestic violence allegations that had been made against him and recanted? Ryan Shazier, he said this before and he said it again today. Walked up to the podium, press conference with the Steelers. My aim is to come back and play football again. It's good to have that goal, even if you never reach it. It's good to have it because maybe that gets you more motivated to do everything you have to do to just lead a normal life. That should be the objective right now for Ryan Shazier, lead a normal life. Because here's the thing, no matter how much he tries to come back, no matter how determined he is to get back, who's going to clear him? Who's going to clear him? Remember when, God, I always forget his name, Zachary Orr. Retired, 
suddenly after the 2016 season, and then last year, suddenly unretired. I'm coming back. Met with a bunch of teams. And then what happened? Nobody signed him. Why? Nobody's going to clear him. Not in this era. No one's going to clean him. Or clear him. People will clean him. They just won't clear him. He ain't getting back in. And I don't think Ryan Shazier is ever getting cleared. One last thing, and then we'll play the Charlie Ebersole interview. Because some of you think that I maybe made a little bit too much of a big deal out of Paul Gunther's comments about Khalil Mack, Gunther, the new defensive coordinator with the Raiders, said that Mack has a lot of catching up to do when he finally shows up. Oh, he's just answering a question. He does have a lot of catching up to do. That's fine. But you, you got a guy who has been trying diligently and patiently to get a new contract for a while now. You don't want to antagonize him. You don't. This is unnecessary. And it feels like, it feels to me, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I may be wrong. I'm wrong all the time. I admit it at least. I don't know if it makes it any better. I am wrong all the time. But here's the bottom line. I have a feeling that maybe Gunther is projecting some frustrations that others on the coaching staff may may have. You, you know, John Gruden. John Gruden inherited one hell of a defense when he became the coach in Tampa Bay. Is he properly prioritizing that defense now? Gunther's already said that Khalil Mack is the centerpiece of the defense. Okay, good, great, fine. But why aren't you getting him taken care of? And why are you antagonizing him? Why? What's the point? So keep an eye on the mandatory minicamp next week. Typically when a guy holds out, of the voluntary off-season program. While he's under contract, he'll show up for the mandatory minicamp because it's a fine, I don't know, $75,000, $85,000. Will Khalil Mack opt to not show up and pay that fine? He's under contract for one more year, $13 million and change. What will he stay away from to get the contract that he wants? It'll be interesting to see. You know, $13 million for this year. I mean, he could skip training camp if he wants. He could hold out right until the start of the regular season and still get his his game checks. It would cost him plenty of money to do that. It's $40,000 a day now, but he could. He could. He's under contract. It's not like franchise tag where you can wait to sign it. Automatically, the fifth-year option kicks in. So that's the news update. Now, as promised, co-founder of the Alliance of American Football, which will debut... February of 2019. Here he is, Charlie Ebersole. As promised, joining us now, one of the co-founders of one of the new professional football leagues. They don't come around very often, but when they do, we pay close attention to them. The Alliance of American Football gets started February of 2019. Charlie Ebersole, one of the founders, joins us now. Charlie, great talking to you. How's everything? Fabulous, Mike. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing great, and I can't wait to see what happens with the Alliance of American Football. I'm fascinated, though, about how this came to be. 
what is the the spark? What's the catalyst that caused you to decide at this point now is the time to create a professional football league that will play its games in the spring? About two and a half years ago, I was reading um, <laughs> because I'm a nerd and I was reading ratings, and I called my dad and I said is it possible that I'm reading this right, that there are 78 million to 80 million fewer people watching sports starting the weekend after the Super Bowl for six months? And he said, no, you're reading that exactly right. And so we started going back and forth on it. And I, there were two major numbers that I couldn't believe. One was about 80 million people stop watching sports on the weekend when football goes off the air. That's one. The second one, though, that was even more intriguing to me was a minimum a minimum of 20 million people stop playing all forms of fantasy sports the day football goes off the air. And so I started saying any other business, any other business where you would have six months where the most dominant thing in the field and football is so much more dominant than any other sport. It's beyond compare stopped existing. Any other business, somebody would have come in and done something. Why hasn't this worked before? And so I spent a lot of time just researching. And then obviously I ended up making the film in the middle of that. Um, and, and that research started leading to nobody had ever put real football on the field, you know, or certainly not in the last 25 or 30 years, nobody had put real football. And so I said to my father, if I was going to do this, who would you think would need to at least bless the idea? And he said, well, you, you have to call Bill Polian. Bill Polian is, he's the, the, the measure of excellence in football. So I called Bill, he and I sat down for pancakes, uh, uh and, uh, <laughs> near his, uh, near his home. And uh, I walked out of that breakfast five hours later and called my father. And he said, listen, if Bill will give you a tacit approval, I think it's something worth doing. I said, well, Bill wants to co-found the league with me. Is that enough approval? And my <laughs> dad said, yeah. And so we went off. And, you know, to begin to realize the appetite among fans, players, and really coaches. I mean, as you're seeing the coaches were signing, for someone to come along and say, let's put real football by real football people on the field is extremely high. That was a driver for me. And, and from there, we started looking, okay, the second side of it is the fans. What are the fans asking for? Well, they're asking for more football, but they're also asking for a better version of interaction, a better version of fantasy, no longer passive, but interactive. And so we've built something up here in San Francisco that I think is, uh, is a game changer. And you said a lot of things there that I want to address, but one of the most important is this, because you, you uttered the word pancakes. I've got a producer who insists when he eats pancakes on cutting up the entire plate of pancakes before taking a single bite. Now, do you do that, or do you eat pancakes like a normal human being? Um, I tend towards the normalcy, um, but I got to tell you, I just met someone who takes all the pancakes off the plate, pours syrup on the plate, and then puts the pancakes back on top of the syrup and doesn't pour it on top, which <laughs> put my whole world upside down and upset me in ways that I didn't know I was able to being upset. Well, well, wait until you eat pancakes with someone who cuts the entire plate, like preparing them for his child, but then plays the role <laughs> of the child and eats all the pancakes. All right. And that's I'm sorry. But but since this is going to play as part of the PFTPM podcast, my, my core group of audience members will love that we had a conversation about pancakes and love that we made fun of my producer who who will not eat pancakes like a normal human being. Now, as to the impetus, and I love the idea, the underserved public the fantasy football angle. At what point in the last two years did you realize, you know what, there's another branch that is quite fortuitously popping up 
and that's the legalization of gambling. I, I, I'm assuming you didn't have that on the radar screen when you started, and that at some point in the last two years, up until three weeks ago, you realized this could make it even more significant. Well, it does, but I, I got to tell you, two years ago, the other major realization I made is that when you actually look at gambling as, a, as an activity, the core football viewer, the 18 to 35-year-old viewer, doesn't really participate in gambling the way that is traditionally talked about. You're talking about like paramutual or you know a traditionally set line, et cetera. What you're beginning to see, and really daily fantasy has been the, the driver of this, is that they're looking for a more gamified version of it. So yes, gambling will ultimately be incredibly important, and PAPSO is a massive ruling, but what I think you'll see, and, and we'll roll it out in a couple of months when, when we roll out the product, but what you'll see and what we think we've tapped into, and we've looked at a lot of research around this, is that fans are looking for a version of game that is more uh, instinctive, more the way you actually root as a fan throughout a game, as opposed to, well, this is a four-to-one odds on this game or whatever. I mean, how many times when you were watching game one of the NBA Finals would you have changed your opinion on the outcome of not just the player, but how many points are being scored and who's being put into the game and all of those things, they're massively important. As it relates to the in-stadium experience, and we've heard so much talk about what the NFL may do or would like to do with legalized gambling, how closely are you researching the possibility of having folks with apps in-stadium engaging in these wagers, not just the fantasy aspect, but engaging in play-by-play, drive-by-drive, quarter-by-quarter, whatever permutation you can come up with, wagering on games while viewing the games in stadium? It's a big part of what we'll roll out over the next couple of months. Giving, giving fans in a stadium, at home, watching on television, internationally, wherever, giving fans the ability to have an interactive experience while they're watching um, around fantasy, integrated fantasy, game playing, et cetera, is extraordinarily important in our view to what the modern viewer wants to have happen. And when you look at the frequency of mobile use in stadium, as well as watching on television, you would be crazy not to think that was an important factor. How much of your time are you devoting to this project? (laughs) Uh, 36 hours a day. (laughs) Has it become your full-time venture? Uh, yeah, absolutely. My my uh, my investors might have a problem with it if it wasn't. Well, I know that you've done other things, and I, I didn't know whether it, this was a part. Because as the founder, maybe you're involved on a part-time basis, but it sounds like this is a full-time labor of love and a passion that is taking up all of your professional attention, which makes it even more likely that it's going to succeed, in my opinion. It's never been my experience that somebody being kind of involved in a product led to a good product. I mean, look, I own a television production company. We have a couple of series on air. That's something that's run by an incredible team in Los Angeles. Um, but this business, my this football league is my heart, my passion. It's what I'm building. And I've been incredibly lucky over the last couple of months together a team, the technical team and a football team that are absolutely the best in class. I mean, I, I look at beyond Paul and beyond the coaches, which I think speak for themselves. When you look at the people that we've built around the tech team, it's building that are titans that have built and built, you know, unequivocal businesses. And I think that that's made my job not only a lot of fun, 
um, but, uh, but that much more uh, fulfilling. Why do you think the NFL hasn't created a developmental league to replace the World League, and it had seven different names over the course of a generation, but it's been 10, 11 years since there's been a spring football league. Why do you think the NFL hasn't jumped in and tried to do something along the lines of what you're doing? Well, it's not an inexpensive endeavor. I mean, that's one. Um, and two, the NFL is doing pretty well. And three, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> <laughs> what is your intended relationship with the NFL? Look, it's a positive relationship. I mean, you look at the number of guys that we hired that have deep NFL relationships. Um, we, what we see is this, right? One of the reasons that we made the contract the way we do for the players, where they have an out to go back to the NFL, is because we recognize the fact, just like the MLS recognizes the fact that the Premier League is ultimately always going to pay players more and put them on a bigger stage than the MLS will. They support that. We support the same concept. Um, I think that you would... It's a fool's errand to try to pick a fight with a $150 billion business um, when you're starting up and also when you're not competing. I mean, I, none, of, none of my content touches any of their content. So ultimately, it's a complimentary, positive relationship. I think you'll see, again, over the next couple of weeks as we roll things out, um, you'll see a lot of the announcements we're making are really designed around what's best for the players and what creates the best opportunity for them. And then at the exact same time, what creates the best product for the fans? Because ultimately, I think the fans have been in many ways underserved by professional sports over the last decade, in large part because the leagues don't have direct relationships with their fans anymore. And just so I'm clear on this, will the opportunity be there for a player on an AAF team if the phone call comes halfway through the season to join a 90-man offseason NFL roster, even though they're months away from a game that counts, will that player have the opportunity to exit at that moment if he chooses to do so? So that's something that has obviously there's been a lot of conversation around. And we one of the reasons that I brought Troy Palomalo on as the head of player operations um, and, and J.K. McKay as the head of player, uh, excuse me, head of football operations, is that those what would ultimately be a player handbook decision, more of a player contract decision, will be worked through over the next couple of months. We, we look at our calendar year as three phases. Phase one is football. Phase two is players. Phase three is fans. We're in phase one of right now in terms of the rollout of announcing what we're doing in terms of football. So right now we're going to give you who our coaches are, who our player development people are, who our GMs, our team presidents, um, all of the operations, our scouting team, all of that stuff is why we're rolling that out now. Then going into the fall, we begin our players. And so we'll go into a lot more detail around what our player relations are and what the expectations are around what, what the commitment of the players are in the league. Ultimately, we believe that the incentives that are built into the contract for the players and their participation, the fan engagement bonuses and other things like that, those things incentivize a player in ways that no sport has ever incentivized a player before um, and does so with a national television partner and a lot of support. But going back to the phases, We'll, when we get into the player phase, we'll begin to roll out in detail what that looks like and what the partnerships look like. Can you give us an idea as to how the teams will go about being stocked? Will there be a draft? Will it just be free agents? Or is that something that is still to be determined? So we're, we're working through that um, in terms of the exact what the exact process is going to be outside of the fact that we know that we're going to do a regional allocation 
as a big part of this. But we want to give um, a degree of agency to the head coaches because obviously there's gamesmanship and sportsmanship around coaches. And so, again, over the next couple of weeks, as we roll these things out on a calendar, obviously we've been planning this for two years in secret. We set a calendar, and uh, come hell or high water, we're going to stick to our calendar in terms of the announcements. But what we will roll out is a way in which uh, the coaches are able to interact with each other without creating a situation like, you know, both college and college football in the NFL has where there's, um, there's a year long frenzy that I think creates um, unhealthy uh, relationships between teams and players in the league, et cetera. Will players straight out of high school be eligible to play in the AAF? No, no. I don't want to see a 17 year old kid get hit by a 25 year old man. That's, that is, not of interest to me. And frankly, every single thing I've ever read um, in research and science and talking to everyone, the, the, the physical development of the, of the human body um, is more important to me than the game. Will there be an age minimum or will there be a three-year waiting period after high school graduation like the NFL uses? Yeah, we're going to, we're going to mimic um, the NFL's policy. It, 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 um, it, I believe, has really done a great job in serving to protect, um, serving to protect players. You're starting with eight teams, Charlie. What's your ideal league size? How many teams do you want to ultimately have? You know, it's a good question. Um, I think it's, the question is less how many do I think we want. It's more the speed to which we want to get there. I think ultimately what killed the USFL in many ways was over expansion and, and, and the MLS almost fell to that uh, as well. And obviously other professional teams have had varying degrees of success with it. I think you have to look at the talent pool that's available and then you have to measure how quickly can I reasonably build um, teams that are going to be able to compete with each other at the caliber we expect. We firmly believe coming out in 19 that we can field 400 to 450 players for eight teams that are going to be really high caliber. I mean, when you look at the players that are missing the NFL rosters by one or two spots, you're talking about players that are as good as the 35th person on the roster. So we believe we're going to field really quality talent, but we need to be able to maintain that quality so that we don't dilute it. And also, so we don't create an expectation of, um, we don't create an expectation that we can't live up to. The other side of it is because we're a single, a true single entity, we don't have to, we're not funded by teams. We're not funded by owners coming in, in, in one variation or another of a, of a Ponzi scheme. And so we're not trying to fill up our coffers with additional teams um, to fund ourselves. And one of the realities of single entity would be a different management style than the NFL has, but you still will be dealing with the reality, the possibility of unionization by your players. Do you have a plan in place for what could be inevitable, whether it's the NFLPA or some other union that decides to try to convince the players to come together in the way that the NFLPA did? Yeah, I mean, well, first and foremost, we, we believe that taking care of the players is one of our, if not the most important thing that we have a responsibility to do. We talk about one of our internal slogans is fans and players first. So everything has to be measured through that spectrum. So to that extent, when you look at the reason for a union, you look for a union to create fair wages and safety and uh, real clarity of what, uh, what they're doing. The players are more than just commodities, that they have an opportunity to make 
a fair and living wage based on what the league is doing. So to that extent, it was extremely important to me to build a structure where we put a very meaningful player at the top of the organization and fundamentally alter the structure of a professional sports league by saying we are not going to have an executive without playing experience at the top of an operation on either side of the players or operations. So J.K. McKay, who obviously was a great uh, collegiate and professional football player in his own right, but also has deep experience running various organizations on one side. And then on the other side, Troy Palomalo, who obviously was one of the greatest football players ever to play, but more importantly is the guy who really knows what it is to fight for equitable treatment, et cetera, among the players at the top of the organization to create a situation in which the players have, uh, have a situation where they do feel properly represented by the entity and in the entity with a vote. One of the things, again, that we'll roll out over the next couple of weeks is we will show how the players are empowered within our league to be able to affect change and work on things that are important to them um, in the early years. Second part of your question, are where will we prepare for a union? I think that what we're trying to do is create a situation where the players feel like they're properly represented as it is. Should a union want to come and inform, it's a conversation that I think we're very um, willing to have when the league is in a position to be able to support that type of relationship. One important aspect of player rights that has come up repeatedly in the news in recent months, the national anthem, the ability of players or lack thereof to protest during the anthem. What will the AAF's position on the national anthem be? It's extremely important for me to drive home this point, that this is the alliance of American football because it is an alliance of players, fans, and the game. And to us, each one of those constituencies must have a voice in the major decisions that are being made in the league. And so over the next couple of weeks, as we roll out, what we've said, we believe is that if you're on the field, we want you to stand, but you don't have to be on the field. But the second part of that question is what, what is the consequence? What is the policy towards the player who decides to exercise their right to protest or whatever that is? And honestly, I believe it's as important that the fans weigh in with us as it is with the players. And so as we write our player handbook alongside the players that we brought into the entity and alongside some of the major fans that we brought into the entity, one of the things we're going to look at is what is the actual opinion of the, of the world as opposed to the opinion of um, a handful of billionaires. And as it relates to fan input, because there are fans all over the map when it relates to the Anthem issue, but I've also detected a segment of the fan base, Charlie, that laments the changes that have been made in the NFL, whether it's what we're seeing now with the kickoff, and I know you guys have a cutting-edge kickoff rule, and, and you're skewing toward a safer version of football, but what will you do if, in this process of canvassing fan desires, you realize there's a strong desire out there among the fans to roll back the clock and play football the way it used to be played with players who fully understand the risks. They fully appreciate anything that can happen to them short-term and long-term. They just want to play football like it used to be played, and the fans want to see it that way. What will you do if that would happen? Well, like I said, one of the things that's incredibly important to us, obviously, is safety. When you look at what we're talking about doing with the kickoff, um, one of the things that's important to recognize there is there were two drivers. One driver was that the, from protecting the player's safety, that was enormously important. The other part is it's the least popular play in professional football. 
if you look at almost any study that's been done over the last 15 years by the NFL, the NCAA, high school football, you look at any study of fans and the fans say it's the least interesting play. You have the lowest likelihood of points being scored on the play or any real interesting thing happening. And for the most part, the play is over in a fraction of a second. So what we're actually looking at is not just how to make the game safer, but how to make the game more entertaining to watch. So what you'll see, again, over the next couple of weeks, this is going to be a phrase that I'm going to go blue in the face saying, and I apologize for it to you, Mike. But what you'll see over, over, really in this case, over the next couple of months, is that the way we're affecting the rule changes is not unilaterally like, oh, we're just getting rid of this thing for this reason. We're getting rid of this and replacing it with something that's better. The way we've replaced the onside kick, quite frankly, I think is just a better thing. I would rather see the players that just watched the whole game decide the outcome rather than a hands team that, for the most part, hasn't been on the field more than one or two plays the entire game. And so I, I think that, to your point, I don't think it's as binary as fans saying, I want the old version of the game. I think what fans are saying is I want a more entertaining version of the game. And the ways in which we do that is about listening to what's quite literally being said but also the second layer of it between the lines of what the fans are asking for, which I think the, the way we've dealt with the onside kick is a good example of us trying to answer for that question. We know seven of the eight teams that will begin play in February. Do you know the eighth city? Yeah, we do. Um, we have been inundated over the last couple of weeks since the announcement with offers from cities that um, hasn't necessarily altered our thinking, but it certainly changed the way we thought about um, rolling out the cities and what we're announcing. I think there's been a lot of uh, commentary about the traditional structures of leagues and how they look at the, the spread of the national population, but ultimately football is local. And so what we've looked for in our cities is we've looked for cities that at a local level have the type of support to, in the long run, build uh, good football. One of the things that's changed dramatically, probably the most important thing that's changed in the last 16 years uh, in in uh, professional sports, is that the, the idea of the major market is non-existent. I mean, look at the NBA Finals. Look at what their ratings have been over the last four years. That has nothing to do. You're not seeing New York and Los Angeles playing in the finals, and they put up the big the game seven two years ago was the highest rated NBA game in 25 years. So to me. What we've, what we've tried to alter the concept around, because we're going to be going alongside our CBS relationship, we're going direct to consumer with our, with our in-app play and our integrated fantasy. So the quality of football and having a stadium that's ruckus and really meaningfully supportive of the team is as important. I think the MLS has done a great job over the last six years proving that cities that traditionally get overlooked are cities that are actually worthwhile. And I think what people are seeing is there's a bit of a fool's errand to chasing the traditional big eight media markets as a requirement to launch a new sports league, because ultimately there's a lot going on in the big eight markets. And why would you go there? One question I was recently asked by one of our listeners relates to the structure of the AAF. Instead of having the eight original teams in a regional area, you're going to, it looks like four in the Southeast and three so far in the West. My guess is the eighth team will be from that same area. Any concern about, what that travel burden and what those costs may do in your effort to get this thing operating in the black sooner rather than later? Well, I've traveled a lot over the last couple of months, and so I've got a lot of frequent flyer miles, so I think I'm going to be able to take care of a lot of the players <laughs> um, just on my miles alone. But hopefully we'll be able to. I mean, like, 
I, I absolutely hear that question, and I respect that question. We're funded as a professional sports league. That's the type of question you ask about people who are trying to self-funded or garage band build a sports league. When you're building a professional league with big partners, with deep pockets, with institutional capital, and big partners like CBS, you're, you're, you're looking at a larger opportunity than whether or not the players are going to, whether or not we're going to be able to afford flying the players around. I mean, I think one of the challenges of launching a spring league um, more than anything else is the number of um, either disingenuous attempts that have happened or non-professional versions or individuals trying to get their rocks off by owning a sports league as opposed to people who have actually built sports leagues for decades who are coming in to do this. I mean, lest, lest we forget that Bill Polian not only took three individual NFL teams to the NCAA, to the conference championships and two to multiple Super Bowls, but he also built an NFL team in a city and was a part of championship teams in the USFL and the CFL. And, and this is, we have hundreds and hundreds of years of experience in our core group of executives building something. I mean, my equipment manager for the league has 35 plus years of experience as a professional football uh, equipment manager. Like we're not screwing around. And I think that that's something that is going to be driven home. I hope we've been driving it home over the last couple of weeks with the type of coaches we're announcing, but certainly we're building an operation that is uh, uh, built by professionals who have done this for a living. One reality of spring football, Charlie, is whether the Eastern teams are all in more favorable climates. You've got Salt Lake City in the mix. How closely were you factoring either embracing February weather in a northeastern climate or avoiding it when putting this original roster of teams together? Uh, Lots of conversation about this, um, but ultimately watching my wife's face as she watched her first snow football game last season solidified for me how great it is to watch a game that takes place in the snow. And so finding a city that could deliver that type of, you know, unique and fun experience is enormously important. And also let's talk about Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City is a damn good football city and they support their teams come cold, snow, sleet, et cetera. And they were a city that fought tooth and nail to bring us there as an opportunity and obviously a deep relationship with Salt Lake City going back to the 2002 Olympics um, with my father and, and the sports commission there, et cetera. That's a city we are very bullish on around uh, what it's going to be able to do. And ultimately, from a television perspective, uh, more than one conversation with CBS about how great it is to be able to telecast a game that looks like what it was. Look, I'm from the Northeast. When it snowed, we went out and played football because those are the best days to, you know, to play. You're diving into big powder puffs. You mentioned your dad, Dick Ebersol, legendary chairman of NBC Sports. One of the big reasons that we ended up nine years ago, one of the main reasons we ended up with NBC nine years ago. How involved has he been in the creation of the AAF? Um, extremely. I mean, my, my father is... Uh, you know, obviously been retired and very happily retired. I jokingly say my father is going to be entered into the Hall of Fame for retirees because he has taken it and run with it. Um, but this was a passion project for me. And in, in being a passion project for me, 
and in seeing the type and caliber of people that we brought together, his willingness to come in and help steer the major conversations um, has been enormously important. I mean, the CBS relationship, um, I think, is built as much on the people that we brought to the table as much as the confidence they have around the type of business we're able to build because of what uh, my father's uh, legacy and my father's input has been able to drive. Um, so a lot. And he's on the board of the, uh, of the actual company. You mentioned the film that you created last year, the XFL documentary. And to me, one of the most compelling scenes came at the end when your dad and Vince McMahon were musing about doing it again. And kind of funny, but kind of serious that your dad's doing it through you. Vince is doing it on his own. How much of a competition do you see between the AAF and the XFL as both leagues prepare to launch? Well, we're launching in 2019. So, I, I mean, in our view, you know, one of the things I have, uh, I like saying this, we have a bunch of people in our organization with Super Bowl rings, and the commonality among all of them, something that they've said to me a hundred times is, when we won a Super Bowl, it was when we were focused on ourselves, and each game, each, each of the 16 games we played in the regular season and then the playoff games, we were focused on ourselves to put the best game on the field, to put the best people on the team and win the championship. And so we've taken that mantra very seriously inside the Alliance to be focused on putting the best people on the field because ultimately the only thing that's going to matter is that when fans tune in, they see really high-quality top-flight football. And we believe we are in the best position of anyone ever to attempt this to put the very best top-flight football on the field. And I, for me, that's hook, line, and sinker in terms of what my responsibility was. Are you planning any differences, Charlie, when it comes to the officiating of the game by the AAF, whether it's replay review, whether it's use of video by a member of the officiating crew in real time as part of the first look? I've been advocating that for years now for the NFL. They won't do it. Is there anything you're thinking about doing by way of officiating that would be dramatically different from the way the NFL does it? Well, in one respect, I mean, we're, we're going to the only replays that will happen in our game are coach, coach um uh, uh, I just blanked on the word. Uh, Challenge. coach challenges. Coach challenges. We'll give them two challenges per half per game um, for for uh, challenging what they see in the field. One of the things that I think is the most important is that we deliver a game that's in the two and a half or sub two and a half hour range. And so delivering a game in which we are not uh, adjudicating every single play back in New York um, but rather putting the game in the hands of the players. You talked about a lot of fans wanting to go back to the way football is. I think that we've gotten to a point where it's almost becoming outright litigation on the field, and it's at the cost of the fan. I mean, when you look at the additional time spent on TV commercials and replay review, or excuse me, TV timeouts and replay review, the average fan is watching like 45 to 55 minutes of commercials in a professional football game and I just don't think it's right. And so we've committed to 60% less commercials in a game. We've committed to no TV timeouts. We've committed to the coaches' challenges for review all around the idea that I want to be able to see a family with a five- or a seven-year-old kid bring their son or daughter to a game and at halftime not be looking at their watch and seeing two and a half hours have already expired or rather their kid is able to enjoy the whole thing. That's one because look, mom, dad, Billy and Sue being able to see the game 
is extremely important um, to both the locality of selling tickets in the stadium, but also the television viewer. I mean, who has time to watch a three and a half, four hour game? It's gotten too long. The Madden video game has become, I think, a significant part of the overall enjoyment of the NFL. It introduces the game to kids, and there aren't any other viable NFL or football video games. There's no college football video game anymore. Is part of your plan to get an AAF video game that, that would that would essentially do the work, the marketing work, on behalf of the AAF by introducing people to how the teams look, what the player names are, how the game plays, how it feels? Is something like that on the radar screen for the AAF? Um, you are uh, a bit ahead of where we are. I mean, ultimately, do we want to, you know, license and merchandise our business? Absolutely. Is that part of our, our initial business plan? No. I think, like I said, our core focus is putting the best football on the field and giving fans the best experience. Ultimately, we believe that'll come through what we're building in terms of our, our integrated fantasy um, and, and gaming platforms that'll happen during the game. And then, you know, we'll see what comes. I think there is a deep desire among people launching spring leagues to be good at marketing. And I think that's really important. I think you want to be good at marketing, but that has to come second to putting good product on the field. It's not enough to just launch new Coke. New Coke has to actually be good for people to want to drink new Coke. Yeah, and uh, that's going to be the key, and that's going to be the challenge. But as you hit the nail on the head from the outset, the market's there, the people are there, and you throw in fantasy football and gambling, and I think the potential is there for a viable spring league. Charlie, I appreciate so much your time. I hope to do this again as this journey continues, and we're, we're paying close attention to what's happening. I'm always in favor of more football, especially once football season, quote-unquote, ends. For you, it's going to be a beginning, and it's going to be exciting to see how it happens. Thanks so much for your time today, and again, we look forward to talking to you down the road. Thanks, Mike. Have a great day. All right. Thanks to Charlie Ebersol. Let me tell you, I'm skeptical about other football leagues being successful because so many of them have failed. But I, I feel like there's something different about this one. This one feels legit. I loved his response because I think it was on one of these afternoon podcasts where somebody asked, why do they have these teams spread out on both sides of the country? You're going to have unnecessary travel expenses while you're trying to establish your footing. And Charlie Ebersol's position is, hey, you know, we're either doing this the right way or you're not. We, we, we've got the money where we don't have to worry about paying for plane fare between San Diego and Orlando. So there's your answer. All right, let's ask some questions, or at least answer some of the questions you've already asked. Mike likes dirt. Per PFTPM Posse member, Mike likes dirt. Oliver Lex says we're focusing in our business and not what others are doing, but also says our business plan is solid. Any strong business plan acknowledges competitors, so this is a crock. What do you make of this? Well, you know, Charlie Ebersol said the same thing. And Charlie Ebersol said that the accomplished former NFL figures who are part of the AAF have said to be successful in football, you always focus on what you're doing and do what you can as well as possible. And then you don't worry about your competition. But I think you have to be. You have to be paying attention to the competition because the XFL is going to be trying to lure some of the very same players that the AAF is trying to lure. And the AAF does have the benefit of a one-year head start. But if the XFL is paying more money, who cares if they have a one-year head start? Who cares? 
So I think you do have to pay attention. You do. A follow-up from Mike Likester. Did your BS alarm go off as much as mine when Oliver Luck said the XFL won't compete with the NFL? Oh, okay. Yeah, they won't compete with the NFL. They won't. They'll compete with the AAF. I think it's BS to say that we're not competing with the other league that's going to be playing the same time we are. They're not competing with the NFL. You, you, you give up the stage to the NFL. What's the point of competing with the NFL? The NFL's done by the time you start. You're a complement to the NFL. You're filling the void. Charlie Ebersol rattled off all the statistics about ratings and all the people who are out there available to watch football after football season ends and the people available to play fantasy football. The people available to gamble on fantasy football. So that's where I think the the opportunity is, and there's a way to do it without pissing off the NFL. And if you can make the NFL happy, if you can get the NFL to cooperate with you, if you can get the NFL not to be in a position where it wants to squash you, then it's it's better. See, the NFL is going to have a lot of power here. If it has a preferred spring league between the AAF and the XFL, the NFL can help that group. So you could have both of these leagues trying to apply lips to the buttocks of the NFL. Mike likes dirt, again reacting to the Oliver Luck podcast. In 2020, we're not expecting a unionized workforce, Luck said. What does this mean for players in the anthem protest era, especially when so many ties exist between the XFL and the president? And the ties are obvious. Vince McMahon, very friendly with Donald Trump. Donald Trump's in the WWE Hall of Fame. McMahon's wife is in the president's cabinet. Now, here's the thing. Vince McMahon made it clear that there will be no protest during the anthem. Charlie Eversall has left it more open-ended. Both men will aspire to have a non-union environment. Now, the way Eversall went about it, and, and this is the smart way to put it, if you give your employees fair treatment, if you give them a seat at the table, if they feel like they are properly represented by management, to management, they don't feel compelled to sign a union card. They don't feel compelled to vote, yes, I want to be unionized, and I want to give up a portion of my money to pay for the bureaucracy of a union. I'm fine going it alone because the employer takes care of me. That's part of what Ebersol and Bill Polian are going to try to do, convince the players they don't need a third party. And that's part of what employers do all the time. You don't need a third party involved in this relationship. We can do this. Now, sometimes they're saying that with a smile on their face and a knife behind the back. Vince McMahon and Oliver Luck will surely be hoping that, that their workforce decides not to unionize, but I don't know. Maybe they will. I don't know why they wouldn't. I don't know why any sports league wouldn't unionize for what it costs versus what it can do for you. But maybe there will be enough of a sense created, especially by the AAF, based upon what Charlie Ebersol had to say. And Oliver Luck, you know, it's the first day on the job, basically. He's not even on the job yet. He's wrapping up a month of notice with the NCAA. But I think part of the game is, and I don't mean to 
understate it by suggesting it's a game. Part part of the strategy and philosophy of business management is to create an environment where your workers never feel like they need a union because it's always more expensive to have a union than it is to not have a union, period. Another one from Mike Likes Dirt. Oliver Lux said on PFTPM that CBA may not exist when the XFL starts. Trump blasting the NFL and players. Trump good friends with Vince, an employer of Linda McMahon, long ties with WWE. Could XFL become the Fox News of American football? I mean, that's why I ask the question of him particularly about the possibility of an old school football league. Because if you say we're going to give the fans what they want, and you've already decided that you're going to listen to the fans that want mandatory standing for the anthem, those same fans are the ones, for the most part, who want old school football back. So for now, high degree of sensitivity to health and safety. But if it comes down to embracing health and safety versus embracing football the way it used to be played and acknowledging that the players will will gladly sign off, on accepting the risks that they all know now exist, then maybe, maybe there's a shift. I think it's more likely it happens with the XFL, especially if the XFL feels like it can't successfully compete with the AAF. You have to give the fans something different. And if the XFL embraces that renegade spirit, the AAF's going to try to be NFL junior. If the XFL decides, you know what, screw this. We're playing football like it used to be played. We're going to be the bad boys. We're going to be the NWO. Remember that? That may be the only way to thrive. At a time when no alternative outdoor football league has managed to show up and do anything, dating all the way back to the WFL in the 70s, and then the USFL, and the XFL, and the UFL, and the idea that two are suddenly going to make it, I think there's going to be some bare-knuckled fighting. That's where it gets very curious. And if you haven't seen the XFL documentary that Charlie Ebersol did, at the end, and we wrote about this at the time, I remember playing back the audio to get it right. Vince McMahon and Dick Ebersol are meeting, and they start musing about, hey, let's do it again. Yeah, maybe we'll do it again. Yeah. And I think they both knew at the time that they were going to do it again, just not together. Amazing. That here we are a year later, and both men are behind spring football leagues that will be competing in two years. Next year, AAF gets the stage. Year after that, it's AAF versus XFL. Reverend Markworth wants Paul Allen on the podcast for a long conversation. I will ask him. We used to do the PA and Florio podcast. We used to do that on Tuesdays. We did that in the 2016 football season. But you know what happened? It was just a pain in the ass. Because I had to get him lined up, and some days he had to be somewhere. He had to go to Vikings practice. He had this to do, he had that to do, and other days I had other things to do. And it was just a pain in the ass. It was fun, but it was a pain in the ass. So we'll get him lined up. PFTP and Posse, how much does Trump going after the NFL really have to do with the anthem issue? Isn't he just using this as a way of going after the NFL for not letting him into the fraternity of owners in the 1980s? I Look... I mean, he may be satisfying some deep-seated sense of resentment toward the NFL, but it's more about placating his base and keeping his base engaged. And this is going to continue all the way through. 
June, July, August, September, October, until Election Day in early November for the midterms, which will be regarded as a referendum on the Trump presidency. Now, of course, if Republican candidates lose, Trump will say, well, it's not my fault. They just stink. If they win, he'll claim credit. And one way to help them win will be to motivate people to get involved in the campaigns, to contribute money, and more importantly than anything else, show up and vote. Complacency among the electorate is one of the main reasons why candidates lose elections. You can be a firm believer in a candidate or a cause, but unless you drag your ass out of the house and go to the polling place on election day, it doesn't matter. PFTPM Posse reminding me of a question that was posed by Matt and Beantown. I'm going to put a pin in that one and come back and get to it when I wrap this thing up. Terry Gensler asks whether or not one of Matt Casey's podcast ideas include him being a moderator in a heated conversation slash debate slash interview between me and Adam Schefter. I know it's unlikely, but it would be podcast gold. Yeah, it ain't happening. He's not going to come on here. He's not going to do it. Why would he do it? Leapers 500, after all the many proposed narratives, what is your gut belief on why Jimmy G changed hands for as little as a second round pick? I really don't know. I mean, the report came out from Seth Wickersham back in January that Robert Kraft basically ordered Bill Belichick to trade Jimmy Garoppolo, that it was going to be Brady over Garoppolo, and that was denied. But to only get a second-round pick for Garoppolo. Remember last offseason, well, they wouldn't trade him for more than two first-round picks. Well, why did they hang on to him? Why didn't they, why didn't they call somebody and say, hey, how about a first-round pick, just one first-round pick? Now you could say they kept Garoppolo as insurance that Brady would still be able to get it done, And once they got to the trade deadline, they realized, you know what? There's no good way out of this maze. We can't use the franchise tag on Jimmy Garoppolo. He'll sign it immediately. And then what do we do? We got him under contract for $25 million for 2018. And we got Brady under contract. And we can't move Garoppolo. And we can't rescind the tender once he signs it. We're screwed. And see, Garoppolo was different from Brady in one very important way. Garoppolo was going to get paid. He wasn't going to do a sweetheart deal. And part of the problem is Don Yee, the agent who's represented Tom Brady for years, it wasn't his idea for Brady to take below market deals. Brady cut his own deals with the Patriots, and Don Yee was just a bystander. This time, he was getting paid. His client was getting paid. So, you know, some think that this was a deliberate effort by Belichick to put Jimmy Garoppolo in a place where he would thrive so Belichick would get credit for finding and developing Jimmy Garoppolo. But here's the thing. You're going to get accused of doing a stupid deal by giving him away for a second-round pick. I really think they could have gotten more. So if Garoppolo's star shines this year, it's going to keep coming up that the Patriots got nothing or close to it for Jimmy Garoppolo. But they still did replace the second-round pick that they gave up to get him. You know, when they drafted Ryan Mallett with a third rounder, oh, they're going to flip him for a first round pick. They didn't. They ended up giving him away for a six. So when you think about it this way, they gave a second round pick up to have a backup to Tom Brady. And then after three and a half seasons, they got the second round pick back. 
and they had the benefit of a backup for Tom Brady. You could look at that and say, hey, that's a pretty good deal. If they'd have known that going in, they'd have been fine with it. The problem is they may have passed on the opportunity to make Jimmy Garoppolo the next franchise quarterback. And how much longer is Brady going to play? How much longer can he really play? How much longer does he want to play? And how much longer does Bill Belichick want him there? This still feels like it's heading towards something ugly. Sham God, do you now believe the select few NFL reporters who've taken umbrage of you being too critical of their conflicts with Goodell's name on their checks can clearly see the dilemma they face and not a single game has been played yet? And there's a gif of Chaz Palminteri. What's he dropping? I don't know what he's dropping there. It's moving too fast. I, I think that the people who work for the NFL and specifically cover the NFL and are paid by the NFL to cover the NFL, I think they know deep down that there's a problem. And I've debated it with some of them directly, debated it with some of them on social media. I found a quote from pointer.org, which makes it clear. You don't accept things of value from the entities you cover. That would include the paycheck. I think the paycheck would be the thing of value. Having your ability to provide for yourself and family tied to the entity that you cover Probably an issue. I mean, think of it this way, since we've been talking so much about the White House this week. What if the White House started its own media operation that was going to cover the White House? Would anyone regard that as credible? What if Donald Trump decided that one of the new exercises for the Trump Organization and remember, they were laying the foundation to do this back when everyone, including Trump and his family, thought he was going to lose. They were going to launch a competitor to Fox News. They were going to launch their own media company that was going to cover politics, news, etc. What if they would do that now? What if Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump would come together and say, part of what we're doing while dad's away, we're going to start our own cable TV network, Trump TV. And we're going to hire reporters to cover the White House. How would people react to that? What would they say? Oh, this is going to be a credible and unbiased source of news, given that these reporters are paid directly by the entity that they're covering. Oh, no, he's not involved in the Trump organization. I mean, the conflict when you cover the NFL is even more clear than it would be if Donald and Eric Trump set up their own cable TV network. So I think they know. I think they know and it's it's part of the deal that you do, right? You want to cover the NFL, you want to be on TV, you want to you want to and I think for a lot of these folks, I don't think they plan to stay at NFL network indefinitely. You set yourself up to jump to a bigger network, to jump to a Sunday or a Monday or a Thursday. Like Shefty did. Shefty was at NFL network. He was the original conflicted reporter. He was the guy they hired when they launched to cover the NFL while being paid by the NFL to cover the NFL. So, and I know of people who have been accused, and I, I may try to get this on the record at some point. I know of reporters who have been accused of being in bed with the NFL who refuse to even consider taking a paycheck from the NFL. So, Anyway, it is what it is, and I continue to be the only one who cares about it. But but some of you in the PFTPM posse get it, and that's why I respect that group as much as I do. 
Leapers 500 has the ongoing dialogue about the helmet rule. Have you have most offenses confident they can actually run the ball between the tackles? I, I think they can, but man, there's just some of these techniques, you know, dropping the helmet. You got to worry about the flag coming out. That's what Dennis Allen, the Saints defensive coordinator, said. It's all going to be how it's officiated. It just it bothers me that there's so much ambiguity and there's so much flexibility. That's what bothers me about this. There's going to be too much power in the hands of the officials. Ollie Hine doesn't have a question, but an interview suggestion. How about Ed Hockley? I'm going to, I'm going to like that, Ollie, and we'll see if stats can pull that one off. Sergio D., I'm surprised you didn't ask Oliver Luck whether he was a commissioner in name only. Everyone knows Vince McMahon is a very hands-on owner. It would be like Jerry Jones hiring someone outside of his family to be his GM. You know, that's a good question. I probably should have thought of that. And today when I was doing research for, what was I doing? No, I was looking for a photo for the XFL story that we posted. And I saw that there was some guy that I didn't even remember his name who was the president of the XFL. And I wouldn't have thought that that guy had any juice. But I feel like this time... Vince McMahon really is, like, part of what he's learned is, I can't run this. And I got the sense when I interviewed him back in January that he's not going to run this. He just thinks it's a way to make money, and he's going to invest significant millions to make it work. And I just wonder how much of McMahon's decision to do it was motivated by him hearing that Dick Ebersol, through his son Charlie, was basically trying to do the same thing. And how much of it was just competition among a couple of titans of industry. The Real Forno, I took your advice and checked out YouTube to find old Houston Oilers games. They were all blown lead playoff losses, but it was still some good stuff. Do you think the NFL would ever offer a Game Pass-like service that gives fans the ability to watch old games? You know, on Game Pass, you can go back, I don't know how many years. You can go back several years. And maybe moving forward... They'll continue to do that, so this database will be available any given year. But they should make old games available, more old games available. That would be great. Vaughn, any information on what exactly is up with the Ravens violation? As best we can tell from discerning and interpreting the statements, it was something in pass coverage, maybe bump and run, a little too aggressive competition. And look, what are they trying to do? They're trying to make their receivers better. They're trying to get more out of their receivers. It, it doesn't surprise me that maybe they allow those guys to jostle a little bit more in the hopes that they'll be better when it's time to take the sheet off the offense in 2018. PFT Sponge, if Brady really wanted to stick it to Bill, couldn't he advertise the shit out of TB12 in the area, possibly buying slash getting ad space from Papa Kraft right in the stadium? Well, that would be one way to do it. I, I think staying away from the offseason program, irritation enough. Bill Belichick. All right, I got to wrap this up. Skullbones Bar, when in Sonoma did you prefer the Cabernet or the Chardonnay? I'm not a Chardonnay guy. I'm a Cabernet guy. Cabernet. I like Cabernet. There's really no taste to it. It's just kind of a dry, it gives you a dry, warm feeling. I just I just like that. I've, a, I've developed a taste for it. I remember the first time I ever had that dry red wine. I was like, why in the hell do people drink this shit? Same thing with beer. You know, every kid gets a little taste of beer at some point. I remember the first time I tasted beer. It was probably Stroh's, which may be part of the problem, in a can. And you get that little taste, and it's like, oh, what in the f- is that? 
Well, I never want to drink that. That lasted until I was 18. I never drank until I was 18. I hated the taste of it. And then I realized, well, you know what? You just got to hold your nose and drink it. If you want that extra little boost of courage, you go talk to the girls. It's one thing I knew about myself. I was too shy to go up and talk without that little pop. You get that little pop, just like a do-do-do. Somewhere between two and three. That was the magic number. While working on the third one, all of a sudden, I was ready to go. I was ready to be a smooth operator. Probably sounded like a complete and total idiot, but better than saying nothing at all. I guess that's the flip side of the old Mark Twain saying. He said it's better to keep your mouth shut and be suspected that you're an an idiot than to open your mouth and confirm it. The thing is, when you're in a setting like that, if you're not going to talk, you got no chance of making any progress. So... I still don't like the taste of beer all that much. We got a keg, kegerator. We got Michelob Ultra and Budweiser right now. We've had Yingling in the past. And I'll drink one while I'm I'm grilling, especially on a hot day. I still don't really love the taste of beer. But the, the Cabernet, I like the Cabernet. So Cabernet, no Chardonnay, to finally answer your question. All right, I got to wrap this up. Brady wants to know which league do you have more confidence in as of today, the XFL or the AAF? Why? I've got more in the AAF after talking to Oliver Luck one day and Charlie Ebersole the next day. I mean, the AAF is a lot closer to launch. I don't know what the XFL is going to do, and I don't think they know what they're going to do. The AAF, I think, has a plan, and they're implementing it, and I'm, I'm confident, more confident in them just because I see it coming to life. On tour forever, when should we expect to hear a resolution to the Colin Kaepernick collusion case? I don't know. I don't know. And I'm still waiting for this dramatic turn. It's been a week now. I think we're getting close to the point where we have to call out Mark Garrigus for writing a check that he hasn't cashed. Dramatic turn may still come, but you don't signal the dramatic turn a week before. A week is a long time. It's only been two weeks since they changed the anthem policy. A week is a long friggin' time. You, you've, got, you've got to pay off the check sooner than a week. Andrew Ye, in light of Mahomes' agent pushing the positive narrative that Mahomes left endorsement money on the table, what are the responsibilities of an agent after your contract is signed? Would you recommend Lamar Jackson retain an agent even though he has signed a contract? Yes, I would. Yes, absolutely. Because here's the thing. You always need to have, in that setting, a third person who will say the things from time to time that need to be said. How can Lamar Jackson go to Ozzie Newsom or John Harbaugh and say, I don't think you're using me enough. I think you should use me more. Here are my stats. Look at this clip. Look at what I did against Cleveland two weeks ago when you put me on the field. I could do more of that for you. I want this. Please. You will give me this raise. The old Dwight Schrute getting fired up listening to the heavy metal. That's not how it works. You need to have an agent who's constantly pestering these guys, who has the relationship, talking to Ozzie Newsom all the time just because they're friends, because they've been working together for 30 years. Hey, you know, I got I to gotta ask you about Lamar. Let's just have a conversation, me and you. Ozzy, when do you think my guy's going to be your guy? What's he got to do? What else does he have to do? Did you not see what he did two weeks ago against Cleveland? Go back and look at that shit. It was incredible. I'm telling you, I've never seen anything like it. You want to win games or not? Put him on the field. Come on, put him on the field. And then you call back the next day, put him on the field. You put him on the field? Come on. 
The agents with charisma know how to pull it off in a way that doesn't drive everybody freaking crazy. Now, some of the agents are so persistent, they drive you crazy, and the only way you get them to shut up is to give them what they want. But that's effective, too. All right, fine, I'll put you guy on the field. If you'll quit calling me every three damn hours, will you stop it, please? It's so hard for the player to do that on his own. Look at, look at Eric Flowers. He's got an agent now. Eric Flowers wasn't comfortable calling up management or coaching staff. Think about that. 22 years old, 23 years old, right out of college, a couple of years in the NFL, saving your, your one and a half, two, three percent, whatever it is. You're trying to make your way as a pro athlete and you're responsible for maintaining the relationship with the organization. Yeah, good luck with that. Good luck with that. I don't have an agent, but I got 18 years of law practice and... You know, from time to time, I got to say th- some things that need to be said. And I always, I always, not always, but sometimes I'll preface it saying, hey, I can hire an agent if you want me to, but I don't think you want me to. So let's have a conversation about what we need to do. And it's all very respectful. I, I enjoy a good relationship with NBC, but it's hard enough to do it when you've practiced law for 20 years and when you're on the wrong side of 50 or the right side of 50, as the case may be. When you're 21, 22, and you've just been a football player your whole life, man. I can't imagine even trying to do that. So, yes, I'd still say Lamar Jackson should hire an agent. All right, what else do we have here? I got to go back and tell that story. Skullbones Bar, did you stay in Healdsburg when you were in Sonoma County last weekend? Yes, I did. It was an undisclosed location, but now I can disclose it since I'm gone. The Hotel Healdsburg is where we stayed. And uh, we had a nice time. Four days, instantly relaxed without the benefit of any of the local agriculture. Had a nice time in Healdsburg for the Matt Casey wedding. And it was weird because you get home four days later. On one hand, it feels like you've been gone forever. On the other hand, it's like, man, I wasn't even gone. And now we've been back two days and right back into the routine. And and I like that. I like that. Skullbones Bar isn't the Demarius Randall jersey promise, just the real-life version of Michael Scott promising all those kids he would pay for there. I guess it is. Hey, Mr. Scott, what you going to do? You know what? It doesn't matter. Wait. He, Randall has to pay for the jerseys for like more than a million people if the Cavs win the series. Well, they get a chance tonight. Andrew Yeh, do you believe the report that Nick Foles was the only player confirmed to go to the White House? I hadn't seen that. I don't know. I don't know. Surprising, but I don't know. Skullbones Bar, isn't there an issue with America when 13,800 people have voluntarily chosen to follow and read the wisdom of stats on Twitter? I'm surprised he's got that many followers. He should be very grateful to the PFTPM posse. Burn Eunuch, can you do an interview slash recorded conversation with Phil Sims? After all, he did say you kick Chris Sims' ass at the drafts during the Sims and Other Guy podcast. I didn't know that. Did, did Chris say that during the show? I don't listen to Chris. I didn't know Phil was on the podcast with Chris and the other guy. And we're in New York three weeks ago, and Chris said, hey, on one of these Wednesdays coming up, will you do our podcast? Who, you and the other guy? Yeah, I said, sure, I'll do it. And they never asked me. What the hell's that? Hey, Chris, are you going to have me on or not? I guess I should ask him that directly. I have a feeling he's not listening to this. All right, I got to wrap this up. Let me tell the story that was asked yesterday by Matt and Beantown. I missed it when I was going through the questions. And I said, ask me again today. PFTPM Posse account has reminded me. 
Here was the question from Matt in Beantown. You mentioned last week that you went to Catholic school for 12 years. I painfully remember the nuns smacking me on the hands with a wooden ruler when I misbehaved. Do you have any stories of young Mike Florio getting punished by nuns? I have one that I will never forget. It's seared into my brain. Now, I remember hearing stories about the Order of the Brothers. There was a group that wasn't quite priests, and I don't know if they were priests in training, but I remember hearing that that they were very aggressive when it came to discipline. And I remember hearing the story about somebody at the grade school I went to, St. Michael's in Wheeling, West Virginia. Walked there every day. Wasn't that far. Felt like it was farther than it was. That somebody got thrown out a window, like Eddie Murphy in Beverly Hills Cop. Not through the window, like out of a window. You know how those windows in schools... You open them and they push outward and there's like this gap, like got dumped out the window by a bride. I'd always heard that, but the brothers were gone by the time I got to St. Michael's, but the nuns were still there. First grade, six years old, 1971-72 time frame. Our regular teacher, I remember her name, Sister Margaret Regina. Right, this is my first year in Catholic school. I went to a, a Lutheran church for kindergarten because they didn't have kindergarten at the Catholic school. First grade, Catholic school. Sister Margaret Regina. Well, she was out one day. And when she was out, there was a substitute. And it was one of the nuns who just, that was her gig. She was the substitute. She didn't have her own class. She was the substitute. And I can't remember her name. I can't. And I can't even, I just have a weird shape. Like, like the nuns were like the, uh, the nesting dolls, right? All different sizes and shapes. Like you could pop one off and put the other one inside and close it up. She was kind of one of the smaller nesting dolls. Because they're all dressed exactly the same way. And they had that, the, 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 the habit where like you didn't see their hair. And, and I just, but, but she was like a smaller nun nesting doll. And... We had recess, and again, the, the substitute was there, and she was she was a little, you know, she was a little feisty, right? And I was coming in from recess, and I'm this dumpy little fat kid, and, you know, sweaty and kind of rolling back into class, and I, I bumped into her on the way through the door. She I don't know why she was standing right at the door. It's like, hey, lady, if you don't want to get bumped into by a little kid, get the hell away from the door. Pardon me, I shouldn't say that about a nun. See, that's part of the problem. So anyway, I bumped into her. And now I was six. And I, I haven't told this story very many times. So why, why not just tell it to the whole world? Why, why not? Why not just bare my soul? I bump into her and she takes her fingernails. And she digs them into my arm. Leaving behind on my upper left arm. I don't have a scar or anything. But I remember looking down at it. On my upper left arm... It was some sort of a wound that didn't look like anything a human being would, number one, have, or number two, be able to create. Because she dug in so deep that, like, the skin in the middle did something. I don't know if it ruptured, but it was this weird looking, it was almost like I, got, I had some kind of strange bug on my arm. From the nails digging in and the skin in the middle that didn't pop, just like, it was clearly clearly traumatized by the damage that was done to all the surrounding flesh by you know when you you know you take your hand 
you know, like just think of it. I mean, you could do it. You could you you dig all your fingers and your thumb with nails on them into your skin hard enough to break the skin all the way around. So that's what I went home with that day. And look, I don't want to turn this into a whole commentary about some of the, you know, things that have happened in the Catholic Church over the years, but I can't imagine what the kids who were sexually assaulted by the priests had to carry around because in that environment, I mean, you're indoctrinated from the moment you walk through the door. The nuns and the priests are the extension of God. So I go home that night and I, you know, I'm a stupid six-year-old kid. I didn't do a very good job of concealing my wound. And what can you conceal? When you're six, what are you going to conceal from your mother? She tends to see the wounds that you have. My mom saw it, and she was like, what is that? And it was probably more like, what in the hell is that goddamn thing on your arm? Because back in those days, the parents cussed openly in front of the kids, but the kids, if they would even mistakenly blurt out one of the words that they heard their parents say all the time, they got a backhand across the mouth. I remember one time, Walking by the window, my mom's looking out the window. My mom had a thing about animals, which makes the fact that we're getting a dog today ironic, to say the least. She didn't want any animals in her house, especially cats. And she didn't like it when cats or dogs pissed or shit in her yard. So she looks out the window, and there's a cat that is getting ready to take a shit in her yard. And she says, look at that damn cat. And I said, reflexively, what damn cat? (laughs) Don't you talk like that. Well, but what did I do, Mom? I was like... uh, Schwartz, what I do, what I do. I mean, at least I knew what I did, but my God, it t- I, you know, I got all the training that I ever needed to properly avoid the things that could get me fined by the FCC growing up in the 70s because throughout the household, you would hear damn hell shit ass. I'll be dipped in shit. I don't give a rat's ass. Son of a bitch, son of a bitch and bastard, which I never could quite figure out the genealogy of that one. Uh, everything but the F word. Now, and not like, I mean, I almost said some of the, not any of the creative, like high-end curses, right? I mean, you know, like the, like the, the, you know, the sexual connotation curses The you know, like, you know. Like, dickhead. Like, you didn't hear that at home. Not that that even had a sexual connotation to it, but it kind of did. You know. Uh, But you heard it all the time. But you weren't allowed to say it. But you heard it all the time. It was the strangest exercise in human hypocrisy imaginable. They're drinking whiskey, they're smoking cigarettes, and they're cussing like sailors, but for the, you know, the really bad stuff. Or good stuff, depending upon your perspective. But you couldn't do any of it. You couldn't do any of it. Do as I say, not as I do. Oh, thanks. Thanks for that. Anyway, back to the point. Is there a point here somewhere? Get to the friggin' point. So, oh, yeah, I I went down this rabbit hole because the, the reaction was probably like, what the hell is that damn thing on your arm? And listen, it wasn't even a dilemma. It wasn't, I didn't even think about it. I... I didn't even stop and pause. There was no way I was telling on a nun. Because if you tell on a nun where you're going, you're going straight to hell. You cannot tell on a nun. I ain't telling on a nun. I didn't even... It's it's like... Like when we talk about the conflict of interest that the folks at NFL Network have. Like I think they probably 
some of them at least like ponder it and contemplate it. I didn't even think about it. There was no way it was not happening. I got to go back to that school every day, Ma. <laughs> no, I ain't telling on a nun. So I said, oh, one of the older kids did it. And that was the end of it. Well, who? I don't know. I was lying to my mom, covering for the nun. Lying to my mother, undermining my relationship with my own mother. Lying to her face because I chose the possibility of having my mother whip me for lying over the possibility of eternal damnation because I told on a nun. So the next day I go to school and the nun who was the principal, I can't remember her name. I remember what she looks like. I can't remember her name though. Anyway, she was on the on the larger, more, more rotund range of the nesting dolls. She gets on and does the, the morning announcements. And at the very end, I'm sitting there doing dumb six-year-old kid things. And at the end, she says, now I'd like to, I'd like to remind you older children to be uh, very respectful of the, of the younger kids and always look out for them and, uh, and be nice. To, it's just this vanilla, like, perfunctory. Right, because mom called up and said that some older kid, you know, left this left this lesion on my child's arm. And you know what? As I got older and I reflected back on it, and you know, they knew damn well what was going on. They knew. They knew what happened. The school knew what happened. The school knew. There's a reason that nun didn't have her own class. I'm surely wasn't I'm surely not the first one that got fingernails dug into his arm the first six-year-old can you imagine that now happening now could you imagine if your kid my god oh my god you do that to my kid oh boy and i don't know whether my mom i i don't think she i think that because one thing i learned from and you would never guess this one thing i learned from my mother and from my father was a very healthy respect for authority and respect for your elders to the point where once I started practicing law at the age of 26 and I had a much older secretary, I, I, I was uncomfortable because I'm supposed to respect this person, not tell this person, number one, what to do. And number two, have a confrontation when there's too many typos in the the memos that I was dictating or whatever the case may be. And I remember dealing with other lawyers when I was 26, 27, 28, who were in their 50s. And, you know, it gets a little heated. And it's like, I, 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 I respect your elders, respect your elders, respect your elders. And, and I, I just, I don't think that it entered my mom's radar screen at all, that it was possible that, that a nun had done that. And if it had, I just wonder what she would have done. Because, not that my mom would have gone up there and kicked the shit out of somebody, but uh, I don't know. I I wouldn't have bet against it if she had known that's what happened. So, uh, so that's my story. I never got whacked on the on the knuckle with ruler. I never had anything else. I never bumped into a nun after that. Let me tell you that the nesting dolls were 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 unaffected by me. I'd never touched a nun again, directly, indirectly, intentionally or unintentionally. I steered clear. So uh, that's my story. 
I don't know. See, this count, does this count as therapy for me? I don't like burying my soul. Do I have any repressed memories I don't know about? I don't know. Maybe they're just going to come out during this show. But uh, you asked and I answered, right? Just like Paul Gunther. Hey, all, all I can do is answer the question I've been asked. I think I'm out of time for today. On that happy note, I, 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 I'm still astounded that it happened. And, uh, I mean, I remember, I just remember, I mean, it's 46 plus years ago. I remember there was no way in hell that I was going to rat out a nun. And that was why when I first heard all the stories about what had happened to the older boys, I, I, it's like, my God, what they carried around, the guilt they carried around. And you can't, you can't, you, you can't tell on a priest. I'd like to think at some point. I don't know. Maybe you realize oh, there's something. You know, I, I, look, there, there's got to be an exception here. There's got, but but just a horrible conflict. Horrible conflict. Because they set these people up as literally the representatives of God on earth. What what does it do to the brain of a kid when you know things like that happen? So so anyway, my arm healed. There's no scar, but uh, um, yeah. It's a different, I, I'm, well, first of all, I don't know where all the nuns went. Are there still nuns? I don't know. I remember by the time I got to high school, there were still some nuns, but they, they, uh, they didn't wear the habit. They, they dropped the nesting doll costume, which was just weird. And then it just kind of like dried up and there are no nuns. And, and, uh, I, I guess they just use lay teachers now to, you know, to do the work that the nuns did. But, uh, there were a lot of nuns. I used to deliver the newspaper to the convent. And every once in a while, it's like, it's like this weird, strange world. They'd open the door and I'd see them in there with their, with the nesting doll costumes off. And it's like, wow, they got hair. Oh my, look at that. There's hair on these people. Huh? I mean, they could shave their heads and nobody would know. So I did not bump into any of the nuns. Trust me. When I delivered the newspapers and I was always very careful when it was time to collect, didn't want to interrupt them during dinner. I didn't want to get them to any, I've, I've been there and done that. And, and look, I, I don't want to generalize. It's not like they're all like that. I, none of the other nuns that ever taught me were ever in any way physical with discipline. Never once. It was just that one time. So I, I don't want to be unfair here. And, and I remember one, one teacher I had, seventh grade math, because I was always really good with math, even though you wouldn't guess it now. I, she basically gave me the book and said, go, you know what you're doing. Just go. And I finished the entire book and they gave me the next year's book and I got halfway through it. And I was just, it was, I was like exempt from the rules of the class. It was like defying gravity. Like the class is listening to the lecture, right? And I'm just, boom, boom. I, I remember that year and it was, and, and, and that nun in particular, and I wish I could remember her name. She was always, always very supportive and she saw something in me. Yeah, I know, again, I mean, really? But she saw something in me that helped me kind of accelerate and laid the foundation for, uh, you know, becoming quote unquote smart, whatever that means. I don't know what that means to be smart. Hey, he's smart. You know what? Yeah, I mean, you know, you're diligent and you're, you're, not, you're not too proud to do homework and you like it. Right. It's not all that hard to be smart. I think most human brains are wired in a certain way that if you apply yourself with the right attitude, you can figure shit out. And uh, for me, math was the thing that uh, that helped me get to a point where I was, quote unquote, smart. Now, once I got to college, it was a different story. Haze of alcohol made it a little bit harder to be smart when it came time to do what they call that shit. What was that thing? What, what was that? How oh, calculus. Oh, God, help me. And then high level four-dimensional 
engineering math and yeah i wasn't i i was not operating on my own pace well i was it just wasn't the pace that the uh the professor would have preferred i i remember whether it was physics or calculus i would always have an epiphany the day after the test when i was a freshman in college in pittsburgh at carnegie mellon studying engineering and they had it structured so every tuesday it was every tuesday or every friday you'd have a test like one week I, it was tuesday because i never could enjoy monday night football one week it was calculus the next week it was physics the next week it was it was chemistry every tuesday every tuesday every tuesday and i always had the epiphany on tuesday night or wednesday morning of exactly what they were looking for on those damn questions so far cry from from being self-taught so again i this is this is my way see i still feel guilty saying anything negative about a nun but the vast majority of the nuns that i had to deal with that taught me in grade school and high school were great people not violent, not inclined to corporal punishment. It was just that one incident. But it was a pretty big incident. And on that note, enjoy your day. PFTPM podcast scheduled for tomorrow with Greg Rosenthal. We'll, we'll reminisce about the old days at PFT. He was with us from 2009 through early 2012. And we'll talk about, you know, football. How about we talk about football for a change? Should we talk about football? Maybe we'll talk about football. Thanks for your time. Check us out tomorrow. PFT Live, Chris Sims. We'll be back in the building, profootballtalk.com, around the clock. Have a great day. Talk to you again soon. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.